characters. So when we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I think we're at the climax of the book. Now, what you will see in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you will see the introduction today to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, but basically, after the introduction, is it is Paul's most extensive, extended conversation on any singular theological concept that he offers, depending on how you look at the book of Romans. But he's going to give you 58 verses here in um, 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the body, about resurrection about life in the world to come. He's going to remind us that when we leave this, when we die, we are not finished with this world or this body. Um, something else is to come. Uh, so this is an extended chapter on resurrection of the body. Now, for centuries, people have looked at this and they look at 1 Corinthians, they say, okay, we have read about everything from incest to adultery to, spirit, to, to sexual immorality to speaking in tongues to not doing Holy Communion well uh, to eating meat offered to idols. We have looked at this long, extensive list of a lot of interesting topics. So people have then tried to figure out why at the end of the letter, we get this extensive discussion on resurrection of the body. Uh, usually, until recent years, most scholars would write and almost talk about chapter 15 uh, as an appendage or an appendix to um, 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 16 is sort of the concluding greetings. In chapter, uh, chapter 16, is concluding greetings. Chapter 15 is resurrection of the body. And it just feels like a, a big disconnect from the rest of the letter. Um, in recent years, people have tried to give Paul a little more credit and um, tried to figure out what the, what the coherent theme is here. Why do we get away from all of that other very practical day-to-day -day stuff from the life of the Christian community there in Corinth? All of a sudden, extensive conversation on the resurrection of the body. I think, and others have been saying this in recent decades, I think that he's been working his way to chapter 15 all along. I think what he's been doing with everything from incest, sexual morality, what kind of meat you eat, what kind of meat you don't eat, how you participate in Holy Communion or not, speaking in tongues, speaking words of prophecy. I think he's been working his way to chapter 15, and he said all that he has said because what he's going to say now is what you do in your body is important. What you do with your body is important. You're not finished with it when you die. Uh, you have to keep in mind, Corinth was basically Greek. It was a Roman colony. And in the Greco-Roman world, we've talked about this a little bit, in the Greco-Roman world, they're very spiritual. Plato believed in the world of the spirit. Uh, and they, they just believed that the body and the material world and creation was something we needed to overcome. We needed to get beyond 
You know, one day we would die, would be, we, we then would be free of all this material world, we would be free of this body, and we just then go to spend eternity in a uh, disembodied spiritual state. It's fascinating how many Christians have come to that same conclusion in the last 150 years. Um, to, to look forward to a completely disembodied, non-material, non-physical, uh, disembodied state makes you a good Platonist or a good Hindu or a good Buddhist on your way to nirvana, but that's not Christian theology. Judaism and Christianity is a very earthy religion. Judaism Christianity is, is big on creation. I think about God created and called it good. Judaism Christianity is big on the sanctity of the body. That's why we, in, we developed hospitals. Uh, we had a doctor in the midst of early Christian communities. His name was Luke. Um, we thought caring for the body was a significant thing because the body is important, the body is good. Now, if you're Hindu, you're spiritual, you're very spiritual. You're so spiritual that you may not be real concerned with what you do with the body. You're just looking forward to transcending the body, getting away from the body. And that's why if you're Hindu and you're in Calcutta, you need somebody like a Christian Mother Teresa to care for the bodies of the poor and the people there. Because um, if, if you're very Eastern in your religion or very Platonist in your religion, and it's just all about going from one spiritual reality to a greater spirituality. Well, if you're poor and in the streets there, well, that's because of what you did in the last life and you've been reincarnated. Your spirit has been reincarnated in this, in, in this um, form or iteration. And whatever you're going through in life right now is part of what you get because of karma. It's part of what you get. Karma happens and that's why you'll come back in another form and you know you'll keep doing that till you get it right and then you'll eventually fade away into nirvana and you'll just be pure spirit that's hinduism in the christian faith when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body which we say because the jewish faith says that uh, go look at daniel 12 verses 1 through 3. Um, they didn't say it much till the latter part of the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, they had been saying it in the Hebrew Bible, and it even developed more so in the 400 years or so between the Testaments. But Judaism believes in the resurrection of the body. Uh, you, you can, you can um, spend the money uh, to go be buried on the Mount of Olives. Some of you have seen the Mount of Olives with me. You can go get buried on the Mount of Olives because when the uh, resurrection of the body happens at the end of history, that's where the bodies are going to get up from first, they think, on the Mount of Olives. Remember when Jesus is with Martha after Lazarus has died? And, you know, Jesus shows up after he's been dead for a while. He shows up, and um, Jesus says he, he's going to live. And remember what Martha says? I know he will live again at the end of the age when the resurrection of the body happens. That's basic Judaism. And we are a branch of Judaism. So we really do believe in the resurrection of the body. When we talk about the resurrection of the body, that's not just a metaphor for eternal life. We believe in both, eternal life and resurrection of the body. 
The material world is important. When you do the creeds on Sunday morning, you say you believe in the resurrection of the body. That's really what we believe is in the resurrection of the body. Um, the spirit and body will be reunited one day. Uh, when the renewal comes, when the great refreshment comes, uh, when the regeneration comes, to quote the book of Acts. So, um, yeah, when, when we die, that's not the end of everything. There's something beyond our deaths. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to do an extensive discussion on the resurrection of the body. Because again, he's Christian, um, coming out of a Jewish background, so he, he gets resurrection of the body. Now these Greeks who just want everything to be spiritual and all of the next world to be spiritual, they, they're having a hard time. Um, they believe there either is no resurrection or resurrection is only a spiritual new birth um, when you came to Christ. Anyway, he's going to talk about resurrection of the body. So we do believe in resurrection of the body. And he's going to talk about what that body will look like. He's going to use a word or a phrase that is almost an oxymoron, uh, but we Christians developed it. He's going to talk about a spiritual body. Now, again, we think you've got to be one or the other in our world because we are Platonists. We, we've been influenced by the East more than we've been influenced by Judaism, Christianity. We, we believe that that's not an oxymoron, a spiritual body. And he's going to go to great extent later to, to discuss how we will one day have a spiritual body. And he means both parts of that phrase, spiritual body. Um, I'll go ahead and give you a cliff note version. Think about what Jesus was those 40 days before his ascension. He was Jesus. He could show them the marks of the scars on his body from his crucifixion. He uh, fixed breakfast. I assume he helped him eat breakfast. But also remember he showed up behind locked doors without having to unlock the doors. Remember those? Remember those resurrection appearances? Paul is going to start this extensive discussion on the resurrection of the body by, by going back to core Christian convictions. So the only thing we're going to look at today is the first 11 verses which really is his intro to his discussion of the body. He's going to talk core, basic Christianity. Um, one of the reasons uh, your pastors here are going to do a three-month series on core Christian convictions for the summer months, June, July, and August, uh, we're going to be basically teaching the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, one of the reasons we're doing that is... Uh, we can no longer assume even Christian folks sitting in a Christian congregation uh, believe this stuff. You know, when the creed says we believe in the resurrection of the body, that's what we believe, but some people have been more influenced by Oprah Winfrey than Paul, and they think that you just die and go into a spiritual reality forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and that nothing else happens after death. But anyway... Yeah, we, we, here at Weston Memorial, we try really hard to Christianize Christians. Now, that, that's, that's a task given this culture today. But Paul, Paul's trying that too. But again, Paul here is talking to Greeks who they don't know Judaism. There's some Jews in Corinth. You can go look at the museum in Corinth, and they do have an ancient menorah. 
that came from a building. So there's a Jewish presence, probably not a large Jewish presence. Uh, Paul was Jewish. So, so Jews and Christians understand this resurrection of body thing. Uh, Plato and Oprah Winfrey do not. Because it's all about spirit to them. Anyway, so look at the first 11 verses. Let me read through the first 11 verses, and then uh, we'll go back through it. This is introduction to what he's going to be talking about in this chapter. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you which you received and which you stand by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless I, you believed in vain. There's a whole lot there. We're coming back. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. whole lot of important stuff here. A lot of terms here that Christians use oftentimes, and sometimes we just don't stop to define these terms that we use. And that's why sometimes you end up with that task of needing to Christianize Christians. Uh, because we don't, we don't remind ourselves periodically what these terms mean to us. So go back to verse 1. Notice the language here of Paul talking about receiving and delivering, or receiving and handing on. Uh, Christian tradition is important to us. You know, only thing we try to do on Sunday morning is to deliver to you, to proclaim to you, to preach to you what we have received. Now, if Sunday morning, well, I'm not going to be here Sunday morning. Next Sunday morning, if I offer you anything that sounds original to me, you, you need to be skeptical of that. We Christians aren't looking for originality. When we ordain, in almost all of the parts of the Christian community, when we ordain, we are ordained to pass on the faith as contained in the Old and New Testaments. We're not ordained to be creative. I told a uh, colleague that one time, and that colleague said to me, well, where's the excitement in that? <laughs> that colleague didn't work with me very long. Um, but we're ordained to pass on the faith. So you notice, and we didn't make this up either. Notice Paul's saying that he is receiving and passing on. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you stand. Gospel there is just... That's the Old English Godspell, which is, means good news. So it's the English word good news that's translating euangelion in the, in the Greek. Euangelion is the word from which we get evangelical. Um, it, it just means the, the good news. The euangelion in the Greek language just means good news. Evangelical is a good term. 
you know, part of what I hate about this contemporary culture, and, you know, my wife can tell you, I, I am rapidly, almost day by day, becoming more of a dinosaur in this culture, um, which I'm, you know, I, I quote C.S. Lewis to people because when C.S. Lewis did his inaugural address at Cambridge in 1955, um, toward the end of his life, he said he was a dinosaur, but he said if you're smart, when you have a dinosaur in your presence, you need to study the dinosaur. Don't ignore the dinosaur. We're not going to be around forever. So I, I, I will confess, I'm, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I still like the words evangelical and the word, by the way, conservative are still good terms. In the last decade, those words have been drugged through the mud in American civilization. You know, so if I use any of these, I always tell people, I don't know what's going on in pop culture. But when I use these Christian terms like evangelical, I mean what we mean by that. If you go to Europe, evangelical just means you're Protestant. That's all it means. In America, the terms, because the media, the media, can, so you know the difference now. You know what a charismatic is in Pentecostal. The American media does not know the difference between charismatic, Pentecostal, conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical. They don't know the difference. They just group all Christians together, and these terms mean very specific things to But it does. Anyway, God's gospel means good news. It's the evangelion. It is it's the evangelical message. So Paul says, I, I, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, the gospel, the evangelion. I preached to you which you received in which you stand. So you receive this gospel, and then this gospel becomes uh, what, 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 what you hold on to and what holds you for the rest of your life. You don't do gospel Christianity for a few years and then find something a little more exciting after that. Um, you don't, you, th this is something that has to continue being part of our life. It's not only something we receive as the gift, but we have to stand in that. We continue to walk in that or live that. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved, the New Testament knows three tenses of being saved, of, of salvation. Um, being saved is a good term. Sometimes in the Christian culture, I, I hear some Christians that will still talk about that. They, they don't use it in all three tenses. I, I would prefer to be biblical New Testament, be like Paul and use it in all three tenses. We have been saved when, when our sins were forgiven um, and we came to Christ. We are being saved presently, every day, moment by moment, hopefully, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit as we're being cleaned up, as we're going on to perfection, as, as we're being sanctified. So that's the process of being saved. And we will be completely saved one of these days when we get out of this world and we start participating in the world to come. At that point, we'll be completely saved, which means, and this is what makes heaven well, what makes heaven heaven is the full presence of God. But the second best thing about heaven is we will be completely saved from even the presence of sin itself. So we've been forgiven of our sin, past tense, being saved. We're in, God's in the process of cleaning us up right now. You know, past tense, when you gave your sins to God through, through Christ, that, that, that saved you. And you've heard the way I say that before. You know, when you see... Excuse me, when you give your sins to Jesus Christ, you have been saved. That gets you out of hell. But then Jesus has to work the rest of your life to get the hell out of you. Um, 
And that's the process of, <clears throat> excuse me, of being saved, of going on to uh, full sanctification or perfection. So, and then we will have the hell completely gotten out of us at some point. Um, the, the, the complete delete button will be pushed at some point. <clears throat> Choking me up. <clears throat> I don't know what he put in this water. <clears throat> but anyway, so you notice Paul uses the tense being saved. Saved is important, but keep it in all three tenses. And then here comes a word that is real important to Methodist types. Um, you don't need to know this. You don't need to know much about this. But we Methodist types are in that branch of the church called Arminian, which we, we, we are in the Arminian part of the church. Methodists, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, most Pentecostals, most Charismatics. Um, we are that part of the church that pays attention to the scriptures when it says if. Now this two words scare some people to death. But notice what Paul says. I didn't make this up. He did. By which you are being saved if. If. You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, there are parts, a part, a part of the Christian community that, and I don't even like this phrase, um, but the phrase is sometimes used, they prefer perseverance of the saints. Um, if you're outside that part of the Christian community, it's usually called once saved, always saved kind of doctrine. Now, what I have to tell my Armenian brothers and sisters is we're saved by faith, we're kept by faith, we go to heaven by faith. We are, we're not saved by faith and all of a sudden kept because we've got our act together and we do so good. It's not like we get saved and then you cheat on your taxes and you've got to get saved again. Uh, we are saved by faith, we are kept by faith. It's all about relationship to Jesus Christ. It's all about grace, it's all about faith. So then the question becomes... Can you quit believing? Not do you mess up. We all mess up all day long. But can you quit believing? Can you step outside the faith? Can you turn your back on Jesus Christ? Um, as an Arminian, well actually as an Arminian, I'd say don't test it. Don't try it out. But as an Arminian with John Wesley and Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox, I would say that I have to keep that open as a possibility because I see these ifs, and there's plenty of places in the New Testament where Paul says that. You, you know, you're being saved, you have been saved, you will completely be saved one of these days if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So we've always held out that it's not what you do, but it's your faith, that you can reject the faith. You can, you can step outside of grace. You can quit believing in Jesus Christ. This idea is going to go back to believing in you. And, um, you know, what, what I tell my um, non-Armenian friends is if I get to heaven and I find out that they are right, you know, there's absolutely no option of a Christian losing their salvation, I will be happy to know that when I get there. Now, if they get there and find out we're right, I don't want to be in their shoes. And that was John Wesley's thing. I don't want to tell people, once you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you are in regardless. Nothing can take you. And I've heard all the sermons. You know, once you're a child, you're always a child. You might go out of fellowship. You might wander, et cetera, et cetera. But you're always going to be a child. I've heard all the sermons. 
But um, John Wesley, like the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, the vast majority of Christianity has always said, don't test it. You know, live your life as if you could fall out of faith. Get, live your life as if you could quit believing. And just make sure you don't. You know, don't test how far you can backslide. I mean, just don't. You don't have to worry about this whole theological conundrum. You know, I mean, all Christians know that you can backslide. Arminians are a little more concerned that you may can backslide further than a Calvinist thinks you can backslide. Um, I hope I get to heaven and I find out there's no option except backsliding that far. There's no option to backslide completely out of the grace of God. But the vast majority of the church just always said, quote Paul, study yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And just make sure you are. You know, anyway, so we like to point out all these places where Paul says something like if. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Keep going now. For I delivered, there's that passing on of tradition. He delivers what was received. For I delivered to you as of first importance. You know, some of our churches need to be re-Christianized on this one. They have, you know, sometimes we get so busy doing so much, we forget what's of first importance. We had a bishop one time, he used to tell us all the time, keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, I was reading one of my Oswald Chambers this week, and he said, um, it sounds so modern, he said, uh, beware, the good can be the enemy of the best. You know, we have to be careful of distractions. We can do a lot in life. We just need to keep the priorities correct. We just need to keep what's first place, first place. We can have second, third, fourth, twelfth place if we want in our lives. You know, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, he's telling you he's not making this up. And as a matter of fact, this part of verse 3 might be part of an early Christian creed. I delivered you of first, first importance what I also received, that Christ, that's just the Greek word for Messiah, that Christ, Messiah, died for our sins. Now notice, that is the affirmation of the New Testament, died for our sins. Theologically, and Paul helps us out in a lot of places, we, we have to say, what does it mean, died for our sins? Um, died in the place of us died in the place instead of us for our sin, died as a result of our sins, um, all of the above. So uh, it's, it's, it, it, it can be all of the above. The New Testament is not doesn't go to great length to say what it means to say he died for our sins. He paid the price. He took care of the ransom. I'm using biblical terms here. Um, he paid what was necessary to God, or he paid what was necessary to the devil who had taken over our lives. We, we've been um, creative. These are called atonement theories, by the way. Uh, you can Google atonement theories, and you probably won't get five to seven um, atonement theories. As we try to define, he, he substitutionary atonement, he, he died in our place. Um, Paul just tends to say he died for our sins. And he's let Christian theologians work on that for a couple thousand years. Uh, Christ, Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Keep in mind now, when Paul talks about Scriptures, he has no New Testament, right? 
Shake your head, yes. There's no New Testament. He doesn't know he's writing scriptures. He doesn't know he's writing New Testament. So the only scriptures they had was the Old Testament. When they preached Jesus, they were preaching Jesus out of the Old Testament. You know, I, I always wish Paul would have like given us a footnote right here. Uh, we suspect when he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, there's a lot of things he could have in mind, such as Isaiah 53. There's a lot of places from, from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Because, uh, again, the early Christian community, when they preached Jesus, the only thing they had to preach Jesus from is the Old Testament. Because, um, uh, you know, Paul is writing in about the year 53. Jesus dies in the year 30 to 33. He's writing around the year 53. Um, the Gospels aren't even written when Paul write, writes this. The earliest Gospel is the Gospel of Mark. It's written in the late 60s. But you don't need the Gospel of Mark when you got Mark sitting there beside you. So that's one of the reasons Gospels weren't written the day after Jesus um, ascended to heaven. Anyway, so the Scriptures they use are the Old Testament Scriptures, which is why your Old Testament Scriptures are part of your Scriptures. We didn't do away with them. They're, they're in your Bible. Uh, so he, he, was, he died for our sins. That's probably Isaiah 53. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's even a little bit more interesting. Uh, we see a lot of Scriptures that can imply uh, the suffering servant. Now, where are the Scriptures that imply resurrection? Um, go look up... Uh, uh, Go look up like Psalm 1610, because that actually gets quoted in the book of Acts. That's where David says, you will not allow your servant to see corruption. You can go look up Hosea chapter 6, first few verses. Uh, that's where it talks about on the third day, coming back so you can serve God. But the early Christian community is convinced both the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were prophesied in scriptures, their Old Testament. Um, verse 5. And then now that he said this, that was this verse 3, and maybe 4, is the early creed. Now he's going to start talking about appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Verse 5. Um, that he appeared to Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter, that's right. Um, Cephas is his Aramaic name. That was the street language uh, that the Jews uh, in Judea or Galilee, would speak Aramaic as a form of Hebrew. Um, they would have said, actually, Kephah. Uh, so that was, that, was, that was who Peter was called. Now, what was Peter's given birth name? Simon. But then Jesus comes along and names him Petros, the rock, Peter. Petros is Greek. Kephah is Aramaic for the rock. Um, it almost appears in the New Testament that um, when when Peter is messing up, Jesus calls him Simon. When he's getting it right, he's called Kephah or Petros. He's called the Rock. Rocky. He was given the nickname Rocky. Is who Peter was. So Kephah or Cephas is the Aramaic. Petros, that's Peter. That, so notice who y'all he appears to here. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Notice anything interesting about the use of the phrase twelve there? He didn't appear to Judas after resurrection. 
Uh, the, the phrase, the twelve, by the time Paul's writing, just means that early group of closest followers to Jesus. Because technically, Jesus appeared to the eleven. Now, after the ascension, they make up the number twelve again. They, they, they cast lots, and they pick Judas's replacement. So they do eventually get back to the twelve. Who is the twelfth one that took Judas's place? Matthias. But yeah, he actually appeared to the eleven. But the phrase the twelve just means the earliest Christian group of, of apostles. So Paul wants you to do the math here. He appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to twelve. And I love this phrase. It's the only place that's told in the New Testament. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, sisters, at one time, most of whom are still alive. I think that's a dare from Paul. These, go, go, go talk to them. Most of whom are still alive. And then he says, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a um, Hebrew euphemism for died. So that tells you something about the process of death. Um, but what Paul's saying is he's appeared to 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go talk to them. And, you know, what we don't have any evidence of is any of these people saying, yeah, we lied. I'm sorry. We got together and we created a conspiracy and we all lied. You got all these people running around who said they saw Jesus post-resurrection. So he appeared to 500 you can still go find them. Then he appeared to James. Who is this James? Half-brother. Yeah, half-brother of Jesus. Or your study Bible may say brother of Jesus, but to be specific, you need to say half-brother of Jesus. Um, um, he was half-brother of Jesus because he, they shared mothers, did not share fathers. Um, but James was the brother of Jesus who did not believe in Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, until after resurrection... Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that appearance? Brother, do you believe in me now? So he didn't believe in Jesus before resurrection. He believed in Jesus post-resurrection. In the book of Acts, he becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. So James became a very prominent part of the church in Jerusalem. Um, And James uh, almost certainly was the author of the New Testament book of James. So that's the James here. Not the James as in James and John among the twelve. This is the brother, half-brother of Jesus who uh, was not among the um, believers before resurrection but became a believer after resurrection and became the leader of the early church in the book of Acts and the author of the book of James. So then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So the apostles were not just the twelve, but the apostles, does that word tends to mean people who have seen the living Jesus. Then here comes Paul, verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born. The Greek word there literally means miscarriage or stillbirth or even abortion. So he's referring to himself as one untimely born. Um, Don't know completely what Paul means by this, but we think we know. Because he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Because everyone else he's listing here are people who spent time with Jesus in those 40 days between resurrection and ascension. Paul claims throughout the New Testament he is an apostle, which means he has seen the living Jesus, but he didn't see the living Jesus during those 40 days, right? So when when did he see the resurrected Christ? 
on the road to Damascus. So that's why he's saying Paul didn't get his timing right. He was probably in Jerusalem when this stuff was going on, I think. But he wasn't part of them. He didn't get to talk with Jesus in those 40 days. And that's why he's on his way to Damascus as devout leader among the Pharisees to arrest these Christians who are saying these bizarre things about this Jewish rabbi. So he's on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus when he has his um, uh, Damascus Road experience, which interestingly enough is recounted for us three times in the book of Acts. Paul never references it which you can write a book on that. Paul never references. In the book of Galatians, he, he, he does say, he talks about the living Christ appearing to me or the living Christ appearing in me, probably to me. So he does say the living Christ appeared to me. Well, he's saying it here as one untimely born who didn't fit the schedule. He appeared, I was the last one he appeared to because he gets Jesus, he gets to see Jesus after the ascension. He gets to see Jesus after Pentecost. So he was the last of the apostles to see the living Jesus, be sent by the living Jesus. So Jesus must have wanted this Paul real badly because he let Paul be untimely born. And he gets to see the living, resurrected Jesus, just not in that 40-day time period. And then, he's, then he says why he thinks so. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Remember when they killed Stephen? They laid Stephen's cloak at the feet of Saul, Paul. Uh, Paul was on a crusade to arrest this, this bizarre new group of Jewish people who were saying these audacious things about this Jesus man. So he was persecuting. Verse 10, that by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Sometimes Paul does get just a little bit of an attitude here. I worked harder because he has to keep defending his apostolic nature because they say, you weren't there. You weren't there in those 40 days. You never chatted with Jesus. And he said, well, I did. It was just after ascension. It was after Pentecost. It was on the road to Damascus. So throughout the New Testament, he's always having to, to, to contend for his um, apostolic nature. Um, that's why he will throw things like in. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, he gets a little touch of humility, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach and so you believe. Two things about that, because there's a word that's used twice there, three times there. I think, that Christians use all the time and sometimes just drives me crazy because, again, this is a term we need to define, the word grace. I saw a group of Methodist clergy write something recently where they just, they used the word grace and made the opposite of grace condemnation. Not wrong, but certainly limited. Certainly limited. Um, a lot of contemporary Christians, I think grace just means God letting you off the hook. 
not wrong, but certainly limited. So let me let me offer you a few sentences about grace. I mean, we sing, we say it's amazing. We use the word all the time. But we need to stop and think, what do we mean when we say charis, when we say grace? Um, the way that me and John Wesley <laughs> refer to grace is this way. I can use the grace of God, the love of God, and the, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit almost synonymously. I would define grace. Let me say what I... Oftentimes when I listen to Christians in this culture define grace, they talk about pardon, forgiveness, the past tense of the saved only. Uh, they talk about what we call justification. They talk about being forgiven at the cross. All of that is part of grace. But remember I just said a few moments ago, being saved is a past, present, future tense activity in Paul's New Testament. Um, so it does include, grace does, is, is, it does include pardon and forgiveness. But, uh, and I, I used to love to do this on the board or day ministry. They thought we were the Inquisition. I love to ask seminary graduates just to define terms that we throw around. And I'd say, what is grace? And they would usually say something um, like um, unmerited favor. I'd say good, but please give me more. Don't stop with that. Grace, here's, here's a, a cliff note version. The grace of God is, is God's empowering presence in your life. Now, God's empowering presence, yeah, it forgives your sin. God's empowering presence sets you right with God. God's empowering presence in your life will put you in a new position with God. But God's empowering presence doesn't stop with that. That's why I think you can receive grace in Holy Communion. You can receive grace through prayer. You can receive grace through um, the means of grace like um, fasting. You can receive grace through Scripture reading because it is the grace of God that keeps you out of hell, but it's the grace of God that gets the hell out of you. It's the grace of God that cleans us up. It's the grace of God that sanctifies us. Eventually, it'll be the grace of God that takes us home to be completely absent from the presence of sin at all. So grace is a lot more than just forgiveness of sins. Grace is a lot more than, than just pardon for your sins. That's why particularly those of us in the United Methodist, Anglican, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox world, we can talk about means of grace. Those things in the body of Christ that God uses as channels of grace into your life. I hope you receive some of that grace through communion. I hope you receive some of that grace through uh, scripture reading. I hope you receive some of that grace through... We have lots of means of grace. God's not limited. Which is why if you come to me and say, I only think we need to do communion once a quarter. I'm going to hear that like you saying, we only need to read the Bible once a quarter. We only need to pray once a quarter. We only need to fast once a quarter. You're missing the whole point of what these things do for us. They're channels of grace, means of grace. These are all things that God has ordained for God to pour God's empowering presence into our lives. That forgives us, but then it cleans us up. It transforms us. Um, 
Oh, for a thousand tongues, you know, the Methodist anthem. Oh, for a thousand tongues, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. You know, that's why you can't just let grace be something that forgave you of your sins. You, you need to kind of move on past that. Anyway, the only last thing I want to say, because I want to make you feel better about Paul than some people feel about Paul. Notice he says, he's talking about Jesus being preached, whether then it was I or they. So we preach and so you believed. He doesn't care who preaches Christ. It's all about the message, not the messenger. Some people, the way they talk about Paul, they assume Paul would just say that Paul would only say, if it's not me preaching, it doesn't work. But notice he doesn't really care who the messenger is because it's about the message that he's received and he's passing on. So I owe you five minutes. Um, please, is the food still back there? If it is, feel free to get on your way out. There's coffee. Uh, make sure everybody knows everybody here in the room. Um, who, who has been to Bible study less than 20 times in the last two years? Okay, so there's a lot of people around. So y'all welcome. Make sure these people know each other. Go in peace. Thanks. <laughs>